You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I'll be reading from the ESV, so I'll give you a moment to turn there. And it's Acts 5, 17 through 42. Please rise if you're able for the reading of God's Word. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee and the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, the Deuces rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let, and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, my dad was a professor, so the, uh, the early reformers decided instead of wearing priestly garments, they would wear the garb of professors because they thought of pastors as professors. So tonight I am going to be impersonating my dad who wore this outfit almost every day that he taught at Wake Forest um, in honor of the reformers who did the same thing. And we're looking at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which should really be called the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus, uh, because the book is all about how the church is supposed to be a witness to the reign of Christ, so that we are supposed to be a type of people that signify to the world, that's what our king looks like. The way we are governed is the way our king looks like. The nature of the church is really the whole point of the book of Acts. Um, And it's a great thing to be preaching on, uh, on the 10th anniversary of the founding of a church, um, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Why are we here in Winston? Why did God form us? Why did God bring you to this church? And the answer is that uh, we would be witnesses, that we would be witnesses to a unique kind of life A unique kind of life that comes through um, following the governance of this king, Jesus, who we believe has gone into the heavens, the invisible realm, and is ruling this world from just the other side of my hand, from this invisible world that exists, and he is reigning over the entire thing, and one day will come crashing in from the invisible heavens to the visible earth. And in the meantime, we are, in verse 20, to speak of the words of this life. This life has been noticed by almost all scholars as a very interesting way of describing the nature of the early church. It's a great song by Vampire Weekend, if you know that band, This Life, but it's also a great way of describing what the early church was like. It's a place where there's a different kind of life. And uh, the great scholar N.T. Wright said that what the apostles were doing was quite simply living in a whole new way. A force of life had broken through the barrier of death and burst into the present world of corruption. And that's what we are to be about, this life. And I want to talk about what that life looks like. And then I want to talk about how the life is unstoppable. If you plant a little tiny seed uh, right next to a giant, like strong, concrete driveway, or even the foundation of a massive house, that little seed will grow and potentially will break up the concrete. That's happened in our house, that that seed. And that's what life is, the life of Christ, which started this tiny little seed of Christ himself who was buried in the ground and then rose the third day, and now it is spreading everywhere. Um, That's the unstoppable spread of the new life. So first new life, 
then the unstoppable spread of the new life. Um, new life is um, not a set of propositions. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, but those words are not the new life. Um, they point to the new life. That's our doctrinal confession as Presbyterians. I love it, but any set of propositions is not the new life. The new life is like walking into a fairy tale. It's like walking through the wardrobe in the professor's house into Narnia. And this fairy tale is actually the real thing. It's not the fake thing. Uh, the world we see, the typical world, the ordinary world, is actually the fairy tale. And the real thing is the life of the king. And we are witnesses, in verse 32, to that story. That's what we exist to do. Witness is used more as something that we are more than an action of witnessing to someone. I mean, it's kind of both, but primarily we are witnesses as a people. We had a children's book growing up. It was very beautiful. My parents gave it to us. And uh, it had around the edges of every page these beautiful illustrations of all the animals uh, and all the flowers and plants that were in the story that you read on that page. You've probably seen these before. And... Um, New life is basically living with a, with a frame around every event that happens in your life, and that frame is the gospel. So we need, to, we need to tell all the stories we tell to ourselves about ourselves and about the world we live in and about other people. All these stories we tell ourselves should be told, framed by the life of the gospel. So in a nutshell, when the Sanhedrin asks Peter to stop talking about this life, Peter just talks about the life to them. And uh, it's very simply this, that the God of our fathers, Yahweh, the Old Testament Lord of Israel, the God of their fathers, has raised up Jesus, the man of Nazareth, the carpenter. And Jesus is the one that you hung on a tree. So you hanged this person, this innocent man. You treated him as a criminal and you destroyed him. You put him to death intentionally. As if he were the one who was unrighteous. But the God of our fathers has raised him. And so God takes the greatest evil ever. And he makes that thing the center of his salvation. And that is, that is the life. That's the frame we need around every story we tell ourselves. God has exalted him, verse 30, as prince and savior. I love that title of Jesus, prince and savior of life. So the only man that will ever be worshipped uh, is a crucified carpenter. Uh, a minority Jewish crucified carpenter that, who called himself the slave of all. That's the only, only human being that will ever be worshipped is that man. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that that is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. God has exalted him, that man. That man rules the universe. That crucified man with the nails, with the scars is ruling the universe. That is what we are witnesses to. And witness... Uh, is witness to a new mindset. It's a new way of thinking with that frame around everything. And the word metanoia is literally uh, the Greek word for changing your mind. Uh, noia is, is mind and changing it, meta. You're changing your mind. You're seeing things in a new way. It's a new perception. And you remember, these people are inches away from death. They're about to be killed by the Sanhedrin. And Peter says, God has exalted him at the right hand to give repentance and forgiveness. And you notice there that repentance, uh, metanoia, 
is a gift. It's a gift. In Acts 11:18, they say, God has given the gift of repentance that leads to life to even the Gentiles. So the, re- the repentance is our superpower. I've said this before, but we don't have to repent. Someone will say like, oh, you really ought to repent about that. No, no, it's you get to repent about that. You get to reframe that event in terms of this huge life. So it's incredibly empowering to repent and to enter into a new way of perceiving reality. For instance, I scraped a car the other day. Um, I was pulling to a place. Uh, somebody had taken our spot in the, in, on the street. And so I had to go to the other side of the street. And I don't know what I was doing. I just turned to close. And it was just the slightest bit of a scratch. Just the tiny little edge of a scratch. And then we find out the person takes their car to the, the shop and it's $900. And I just, I, it just, it kind of sickens me to think about what we could have used that $900 for, which is now completely wasted. But, um, you know, my wife told me, you know, it's, it's, it's the Lord's money. It's not your money. It never was your money. He's doing with it whatever he wants to. And we get to meet our neighbor. And maybe one day we'll actually get to know that neighbor and have them over. And somehow God uses these things for good that seem absolutely ridiculous. And she had put a frame around something that looked like a totally meaningless disaster into perhaps something that God, well, certainly something God is using. Of course he is. Um, you know, think about um, if your family is having a fight that's kind of scary. I mean, you all have experienced this. Either your own family that you live in now or the one you grew up in. But you're in one of those really scary fights where you feel like, I don't know if God's going to get us back from this. This feels really scary and dangerous. And if you can, at that moment, and I've had to do this at times, just force myself to try to reframe that event in the light of the gospel. That actually, I believe that the king of the world is, is such a powerful reconciler that uh, he was willing to stretch out his arms and embrace the people who hated him to the point that it crucified him, that if he is the one ruling the world, then surely he is going to, he's going to reconcile in a way I cannot even imagine. He is going to do something ultimately one day to bring reconciliation. Uh, somebody told me that they felt like an imposter at work. And I, I read something that said the vast majority of Americans feel like they are imposters, that they're actually incompetent, uh, they're not capable of doing their job. So if that's you, uh, you're in good company. I feel that way at times, for sure. Especially certain parts of my job, I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not really capable of doing that. That is not in my gift set. And then you think to yourself, but the one who rules the world is actually said that he is one with me. That I am literally united to the one who rules the world. The king of kings, the one who was crucified the one who took all my sins. And so, however incompetent I feel in Christ, I am, I am empowered by him. I, I am called to do what he's called me to do. And I have the confidence that I am ruling uh, in my job what I'm doing. I am governing um, with the presence of the king uh, right next to me, inside of me, not even next to me. So suffering with Christ, it changes everything the way you experience it. Everything has changed. They were rejoicing in verse 41 that, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So they were aware that they were, when they were suffering, they were not suffering alone. They were, it was deepening their fellowship with Christ. When you suffer, it's deepening your fellowship with Christ. 
My nephew told me his teacher at school, the Bible teacher at school, has a sign on the wall that says, suffering is redemption. And that when we suffer with Christ, we feel that. Because the suffering is never in vain. Because the one who was crucified has been exalted as prince and savior. So repentance is not Eeyore. You know, the donkey and Winnie the Pooh with the long ears, with the tail. Um, doesn't have much of a tail. He says things like, you know, it could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. That's, that's not repentance. Like feeling really bad about yourself or feeling like you're, you don't measure up. Um, and having kind of speaking in kind of that Eeyore voice. That is not repentance. Repentance is walking off the set of The Office into Middle Earth, The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's, it's walking off the set of Dunder Mifflin and Scranton, Pennsylvania and going into Rivendell or something. It's just living in a new world. You're changing your mindset about the world you live in. And it's not the things you see. There's a lot bigger world out there ruled by the king. At breakfast on Thursday, we were talking about um, AA meetings. A group of us would go to breakfast after the prayer meeting, go to Cafe Arthur's. We were talking about AA meetings, and we were talking about how there's this unique way that AA meetings call people in. I feel like they witnessed the way the early church witnessed, which is through repentance. Uh, These folks come in there, these broken people, anonymously. I mean, they're secret, for goodness sakes. They come in there and they gather in church basements with cigarettes and metal folding chairs and they're walking into a new world where they're saying, I can't manage my life. That person I am out there is a fake. I cannot manage my life. I submit to a higher power and I take a rigorous moral inventory for my life. I mean, that is that is as much like the church as Christ conceived it as anything. They're not marketing. They're not recruiting. They're living this life of repentance and forgiveness. And that's what the church should be. I mean, we have grown so much, uh, even in the last half a year, certainly the last 10 years. uh, We have not launched an outreach program, if you haven't noticed that. Uh, We have not bought any ads on Instagram. We're not really into that kind of thing. We don't do a lot of marketing at all. But what we do is we witness to the new life by repentance. By living as if the one who rules the world is crucified. That's how we witness. It's like a new set of sensory uh, perception. I'm reading this book called The Immense World, which is about how animals have these unique umwelts. It's a German word, U-M-W-E-L-T. And like a bat has a sonar system. And like becoming someone in the new life is like you have a new sensory perception system. You've added a sense. You've added a sense of perception where now you're aware your umwelt has grown. And if you watch Winston-Salem from above, kind of like a Find My Friends app, and you have all the people of Salem all over the city, dotted all over the city, you would just notice these little contrails of repentance. You know, like a plane, the contrails of a plane, these rippling clouds of water vapor. I'm convinced you would see behind the people walking around, behind us, you would see healing and hope and reconciliation and restoration. I mean, I know this because I hear the stories. I know what y'all do. And these things are trailing behind these gatherings we have, like worship or Bible studies or prayer meetings or small groups or meals in homes or people who gather at the West Salem Public House. These things are happening all the time, and that is the new life. And that life cannot be stopped. That's the second point, the unstoppable spread. Uh, When they arrested them and put them in public prison, it was triple locked, you know, the handle, uh, the bolt, the chain, 
And the Sanhedrin gathers early in the morning and they're trying to figure out how are we going to stop this? We've got to stop this. This is not the first time they've had this dilemma. And so they called together a council at daybreak. Very important business. Daybreak, verse 21. And the Sadducees, these serious men are in deliberation and they're scratching their heads about how are we going to stop this life? And suddenly this guard runs in. And the guard says, verse 23, the prison was locked and there were guards at the door, but we opened them and there was no one in there. And the Sadducees are like, ah, like they're berating the guards. They're frustrated. What's going on? And then all of a sudden somebody else rushes in and says, look, out there, they're actually teaching right now on the temple stairs. Verse 25, the very ones you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching. And they must have just been pulling out their hair. How are we going to stop this? Every time we try to stop it, it gets stronger. So they call them back in again. The Sanhedrin calls in the apostles. And after a heated debate, they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll beat them again. We'll beat them again and we'll tell them not to do it. So verse 40, they're like, okay, listen, we don't ever want to hear you talking about Jesus again. And they beat them and they send them out. And what's the next thing that happens? They return to the temple and they preach with more fervor. It's like trying to tear down a a mount of ants. And the more you tear down the mount, they just keep coming out. It says in verse 42, they were ceaselessly now preaching Jesus daily. In the temple and from house to house. And so all their threats, all the imprisonment, all the violence is just strengthening the witness, which is so encouraging that it is not about us. Paul says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered the seed and I'm not anything and he's not anything, but only God who gives the growth. God gives the growth, not any human being. It's not about us at all. Trying to contain the gospel or lock it up is like trying to lock up MacGyver, if you've seen that in the 80s. Or Ethan Hunt, if you know Mission Impossible. Um, N.T. Wright says, there are no locked doors to the kingdom of God's advance. The gates of hell cannot prevail. The the gates of hell mean that that hell, Satan is trying to put up walls all the way around the world. You know, he tries to put one up in Europe and then the gospel breaks through. He tries to put another one up on the way to America. That one breaks through. He tries to put another one up on the way to Africa. It breaks through, breaks through. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the advance of the gospel. Gamaliel says um, when the Sanhedrin's about to kill them, uh, that's, the, that's the final step they're going to take. They're going to kill the apostles. And so Gamaliel, this wise old rabbi who's actually well known in Jewish literature, uh, verse 35, he says, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do. Because if this plan is of human origins, it will fail. It will fail. But if it is of God, then nothing you can do will ever overthrow it. And guess what? It has not failed. You know, Thutis failed. Uh, the other guy he mentioned failed. The two, these, there were a lot of actually, a lot of messiahs rose up at this very time in the history of Israel and they all failed. It, it, did, it got scattered. It didn't spread. But this one didn't fail. It has swept through the synagogues of the Middle East. It conquered the Roman Empire. It has spread across the world. In the year 1800, 25% of the world had heard of the gospel of Christ. That witness has expanded to 50% in 1900. Today it's 75%. It's going to keep growing. There is no way to stop the advance of the gospel. On uh, March 22nd, 2022... Uh, right at the beginning of the war, Ukrainian war, uh, there was a video from a Ukrainian bomb shelter that went viral. 
And I'm sure some of you know what I'm about to say. And the caption on the video was, this is what we do in bomb shelters when they try to kill us from the sky. And the video shows, I encourage you to watch it, it shows a young Ukrainian concert violinist. And she is dressed in extremely formal attire. And she's standing up tall and she's playing her violin. And she's playing as the shells are raining down in this bomb shelter with this little gathering. She's playing this song. It's a, it's a Ukrainian folk song. And the song is What a Moonlit Night. And what she's doing is she is exalting in the beauty of the heavens that those bombs cannot touch. What a moonlit night. When everything has gone dark, she is witnessing to something much higher than all the darkness down here. And you know there's darkness down here, not just the war in Ukraine. Uh, Our world is much darker than a bomb shelter. And yet, we witness something that is higher than the moon, the Lord of Lords. Even on the cloudiest, darkest, rainiest, coldest day, which is like this day, up above those clouds and that cold and that rain is the Lord of Lords, who is like the sun who shines like the sun, always shining love, mercy for his enemies on everyone down here. Jesus, who you hung on the tree, has been exalted to the right hand from a tree to a throne. That's, that's the life we live in the gospel. That's what we are with. Remember, we love these rascals.